What's up, everyone? This is another episode of the Talking Up Fitness Podcast. This is Ty, your host. Today, I have the honor of interviewing and speaking to Joe. Joe, how are you, bud? Yeah, I'm doing great today. Um, Joe has a couple of projects running right now. Uh, we'll dive a little bit into his endeavors and how I got to know him. But Joe, for those of us who don't know you that well, I want to give you a couple of minutes. Please introduce yourself to the audience and tell the people what you do. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Joseph Zaleta. Uh, I live out here in Long Island, but was uh, born in the Philippines, but raised in Queens for most of my life. Uh, back in 2002, I joined the Marine Corps right after 9-11. Uh, served two tours in Iraq, came back, became a paramedic in New York City. And since then, I've uh, been working EMS in New York City and now in Long Island. But uh, during that period, I started a nonprofit called the Black Six Project in name of uh, or in honor of a platoon that I serve with through my second tour. And so, um, mostly military veterans and first responders that I've met along uh, the, the time I've served in EMS and in uh, the, the military. And we do humanitarian work and disaster relief like in different countries. And also uh, we started a coffee company called Black Six Coffee Trading Company, which uh, we use to fund the nonprofit by selling uh, awesome specialty grade coffee here in our New York area, mostly on our website though. Mm-hmm. I can vouch for the coffee. Mm-hmm. Joe has uh, graciously uh, provided some. For those of you who know me, I am a coffee fiend. So his coffee is really good. And uh, for those F45ers, you'll probably see kind of the, the brochures and everything. So um, we can talk a little bit about the coffee project specifically, mm-hmm. but I wanted to go back to the origin story about how um, you decided, right, to go ahead and um, join the military and why was it important for you to carry that on to the humanitarian efforts after the fact? Um, I guess in the, this story goes back to uh, my adolescent young adult days when um, I was a high school student or near dropout high school student in Queens. I was uh, going to a high school in like Sunnyside, Queens, and I was pretty much a pretty good high school student until uh, senior year. Uh, I think I, I discovered hanging out and then I just, I really enjoyed like not going, pretty much not going to school and like just hanging out in Queens or Manhattan. And I was pretty close to uh, not graduating high school. And my my principal of my high school caught wind of my escapades of failing. And we had a pretty good relationship with the uh, me and the principal in my freshman, uh, sophomore year. Right. Because I, I I would go with her to the different junior high schools at their high school fairs and represent the high school. So she knew uh, of me during that time and right. me represent yeah, representing the high school. Uh, I always drew, I uh, tried to draw the people to go to our high school, our vocational high school, aviation high school in, uh, right. in Sunnyside or Long Island City. And it was a dramatic difference of what I was as a senior. And she pulled me into her office and was telling me that uh, she was really disappointed in me. And one of the biggest things I always uh, have a fear is disappointing people. I could disappoint myself, but I'm sure with many people when you feel you've disappointed 
someone else, mm. it hurts you more. Mm. And um, I told her like, this is something I didn't like think I would do. And she pulled the guidance counselor into the office and she told me that uh, we're gonna make sure you get your, uh, the, your diploma. So the guidance counselor set me up with a few internships. It did take me uh, another year uh, to finish to get my credits, but I ended up getting an internship at the World Trade Center mm -hmm. on the trading floor. And that was totally opposite of what we were learning in high school. Aviation high school was a vocational school where we learned to fix aircraft, like the, the structure of the airplane and then the engine. And I ended up on this internship on the trading floor, which was like now finances. Uh, I've never was big on finances, but I ended up loving being out there and getting stuck with some adults who, who showed me what a lot of the real world was entailing. Mm. And then, so this was summer of uh, 2001 and then the day of September 11, uh, I unfortunately, the night before, went back to my old ways, was out clubbing in Manhattan, came home late, uh, went to sleep. I had to go uh, get up early to go to my internship on the trading floor at the World Trade Center. And next thing you know, someone's calling me and it was like eight o'clock already and or around 7.30ish and it was like, one of my close friends from high school saying, hey, did you go to your internship, your job? Yeah. And I was like, and I was pretty much like, oh man, he just woke me up, like I'm running late. Yeah. And he was like, don't worry about it. Like something happened at the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And he said, just turn on your TV. So we're watching the TV, I'm on the phone with him. And like already at that time, one of the, uh, aircraft already hit one of the towers. And me and him, since we were in uh, uh, aviation high school, we knew a lot about like aviation history. And back after like during World War II, one of the, a bomber accidentally crashed into the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. So we're like, oh, this has happened before. This is probably an accident. Right. And then when we watched the second tower hit, it was just like, there's no way right. this is an accident. Um, and then when the towers collapsed, the, the phone went dead. And at that time, I was like, what's, what, what's the world coming to? And me growing up in New York since uh, the 80s, I was like, this is like my city. I can't believe this is happy to us. This, the, the, the attack where I was working. Right. And like most of the US, the U.S., I think we felt like victims. And at that time, I felt... The only way to overcome that feeling of being a victim was to go on the offensive. And back in high school, I've always like had thoughts of joining the military and I thought, you know what, I'm not amounting to anything right now. I was I was already behind as a, uh, going into the aircraft industry. Uh, I did like, I think I was doing well in the finance industry, but it wasn't like my cup of tea. So I was like, I'm gonna join the, the military. This is like my only way to be in the offensive. Um, and I think that like the very next week I went to the recruiter's office. I went to the Marine Corps recruiter and I said, hey, uh, I wanna join the Marine Corps. When's the quickest date I could ship off? 
And through that process, he, uh, we had, I had to take the ASVAB test. I scored very well on it. Had to get over my parents, um, knowing I was gonna go into the military. And- Were your parents um, non-supportive or would they ha would they have hesitations actually? They had, I won't say they were supportive, but they knew they had no uh, skin in the game as far as making a decision. Everybody, they could see, I already made my decision, and the only thing they could do was just, I guess, watch what what was going to happen next. They didn't say, "Don't do it," you know, but they definitely uh, were very upset about like the decision. But either way, I was already. They knew I was already fixated on the idea. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife, was. Uh, definitely upset about it, but she kind of knew already from my mindset before right. that I was going into the military after that. So I think the first date I shipped off was January 2002, like three months after 9-11. And it was, uh, I went to, my specialty was uh, infantry. I went to Marine Corps Infantry. I wanted to do, like, do a, a job where we would put me on the front lines. Right. So I went into Marines, and I think uh, it let me see another side of myself and another side of, like, I guess, the world. Right. Um, most of the time I spent in uh, New York, and I thought, like, this is, I met people from all over the country and in boot camp when we had to, like, function as a team, but at the same time, like, finding ourselves as who we are at that stage of our life. And uh, after boot camp, I went to infantry school in Camp Lejeune, and then we uh, mostly trained in like the infantry tactics uh, the Marine Corps is uh, known for. And then I think it was July, July 2002, I got stationed in Camp Pendleton, California mm -hmm. with the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. So if you've ever watched Battlefield LA, where they fight these aliens, that is my unit. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's it was, I was watching it, I was like. Is that, is that, is that the common refrain when, when, when you and the team speak about like, well, like how, how we, to relate to, to civilians? Yeah, well before that we would say, oh yeah, we ended up in the most decorated battalion in the Marine Corps, and no one knows specifically the unit. Yeah, but when, but you have to you have to put the analogy. Yeah, so, because they yeah. would most likely come across it when they watch. Yeah, like a marine unit battling aliens right. in, in in LA. Right. So yeah, I was watching that, and the guy goes, the main character goes, "Retreat hell," and I was like, "That's our motto." Mm. And then I was like, "No way, this is two five. and it was Echo Company. I was in Golf Company, but the battalion was Second Battalion Marines. I was like. Oh my goodness, they chose 205 to be the unit that fights the aliens. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you have to explain it now. Yeah. Well, As if they were able to watch that movie. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, so after, after that, that original decision to go ahead and just serve, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that you did two tours and then you came back and you decided to continue on helping others using, um, via the EMS career that you've spoken about as well. So was that your specialty as well when you were serving? Were you were you um, a medic or what was your... Oh, no. Um, the Marine Corps, not a lot of people know that 
like in the Marine Corps, we don't actually have our own medical staff. We're supported by the Navy. We're actually Department of the Navy. And we have Navy corpsmen who are attached to us that are our medics in our, in our uh, units. So during my second deployment to Iraq, we were in a, a town in Iraq called Ramadi, which was like one of the worst areas in Iraq at that time. And we had a Navy corpsman, Doc McDonnell, who was with us and he did like phenomenal work. He saved like uh, Marines from other platoons that were assigned to us. He was just always there. And our job was like, if someone did get hurt and he would run off, we had to make sure he was okay. So we would run with him right. because he, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. We can't stop him. Mm. Um, but during that time, we got back and we had like questions or doubts of what we were gonna do, whether we we're gonna extend our contracts in the Marines or go to the civilian world. We, he, we had like a good discussion about what I was gonna do. Right. He said, if you're gonna go to New York, why don't you try out for EMS? And I was always hesitant because one, like the infantry side of the Marine Corps has always been treated as if we're like, not the smartest people. We're just there to add, our nickname were, uh, were grunts. We're just basically there just to mm. muscle our way in, fight the enemy and hopefully uh, uh, achieve the mission. And my doubts were that, like I wasn't smart enough to like understand the medical part, the, the trauma side. And he said two things. He said, one, Joe, if you extend into another contract, you would most likely get killed. Cause he was with me on my first, my, sec my second deployment. And he always said, I felt like you used all your good luck on that, mm. on that deployment. Cause he thought many times where we got ID'd, someone shot a rocket at our vehicle, at our, at our position that I was the one that got hit. And I was always luckily not the one. So it was, I feel like you used all your luck on that deployment. You, who knows what'll happen in your second deployment. Two, if you put the work in that you did physically into what you did mentally in like in uh, the books, right. that's something we weren't used to. It was like studying. Like could treat the books as if it was your gym. You put the time you did in the gym, but put it into your books, there's no stopping you. Right. So like I had to take his advice and really pretend my brain was like a muscle. Like, so something I wasn't used to was like reading, absorbing, trying to absorb the material. And at that time when they got out of the military and I went to EMT school, and I, I did take his advice and I felt I was behind. Like uh, my peers or people who were taking the EMT certification class had already years of studying. Meanwhile, I was just like a fighting war, not really mm. reading the book. So I felt more of a challenge to catch up in like how I would learn through a book. So there was that motivation to try to catch up. Right. And then when I, I kind of started seeing what he was uh, talking about, right. like, all right, I'm passing my test. I mean, not be as stupid as I thought. Right. And then two, like another thing that happened was um, when I went to EMT school, I ended up, uh, we had to do a ride along. 
And my ride along was with a, a unit out of Mary Immaculate Hospital in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in like Hollis, Queens area, which is right next to it. And I went there and I felt this like a welcome home feeling. Like I was like, oh man, I'm back in my Oh, from my neighborhood your, from from oh not not your deployment days in terms of your growing up yeah and, okay I was like you. seeing the neighborhood I was, I grew up in right and I didn't know this but one of the preceptors that I did a ride along with was uh, a girl that I went to junior high school with oh wow so, yeah wow. so she was like uh, what 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 are you doing here like taking EMT school and I was like I just got back from the military and I was like oh my god I, I'm so thankful you're here because I have no idea what I'm doing. It'd be great to like learn from you. Yeah. And she's like, Joe, you got this. Just like, you just gotta learn minor stuff. And uh, I think it was totally different in what I would expect. I I found a lot of satisfaction in going into like people's houses. And it was totally different from what well, the experience I had in the military. When we were going into people's houses, we were like kicking down their door, we were blowing up their door, and we just, there was always fear in the people that we met inside. This time it was just like more inviting. Mm -hmm. um, I think it calmed a lot of my nerves as far as like my experiences in the military. We were, I got to see people's pictures and I got to relate to them. And it also brought out like a social side that I didn't, I thought I had trouble with. I was just more uh, in the Marine lingo. Because uh, you're used to that yeah. style. So I learned then that I had to like speak a different way or learn to connect with people if I had to solicit like a good idea of what was going on with their emergency. Right. When I, if I was just speaking Marine lingo, what would I be getting out of? Would they understand me? Would they trust me? Hmm. And I was really working on being the best EMT at, the, at that time. So um, I saw, I guess, a social change where I was coming out of my shell. Hmm. Because coming back here, I was, uh, I think, more secluded. And I felt like no one understood where I'd been the past few years. But the patients and or the patients' families helped me like connect more with the outside world. Because you were able to put yourself out of your immediate position. Because yeah. you had to care for someone else. Yeah, just to be very good at yeah. what I do, I had to like understand or talk to them where they will tell me a lot what was going on and they will give me a lot of clues of what caused them to have this medical problem, what caused them to have this traumatic problem. Mm -hmm. And also to gain their trust into letting me take care of them. Right. So uh, socially, I became a lot better, and it led me uh, then to like pursue uh, further into my paramedic certification. Okay. Yeah. So throughout this process of, I guess, readjustment and mm -hmm. getting into different worlds in terms of helping uh, mm -hmm. versus your previous time, what has been? What do you feel like has been the biggest difference? You mentioned a little bit about social, mm -hmm. being more socially adapted. Uh -huh. civilian life what is something else that you feel like has been a huge positive for you in your profession that you probably wouldn't have thought before you got into it um i would also think is the the purpose mm -hmm. um 
my peers that I served with in the Marines that that left the military went and went back to their respective places, we had trouble readjusting. And I don't think we could have those days that we did before. Those days were uh, we had to like work at the peak of our profession. We had this purpose of you know uh, finding the bad guy and working hard at it. You know that's the main reason we were there. Now I'm back here. You know sometimes I think a lot of the people I serve with they were trying to find like their purpose afterwards. Like what would match that, mm. that kind of glory that we had? Like you would get into a firefight, next thing you know, you may have like destroyed a few like bad guys. Now here, that, that, is, like a, that is like a great feeling, but here it's like, where, where are you gonna like match that? Mm. And I found that I think in, in being a, a paramedic ENT was, I, I, we, someone was in cardiac arrest, we get a pulse back or someone was in tra trapped into in a car. Uh, they were able to get cut out. You would start IVs, get into the hospital and, you know, hopefully save someone. Right. So there are, it, it was the other end of the seesaw where destruction was happening on the beginning part of my life. And then now we're like saving things. Right. Like we're not, I'm not killing anyone. Right. right? I'm not like, trying to save people. Yeah. And I almost trying to find that equilibrium. Yeah, it was and I felt like this is probably I was thinking this is the universe's way of me balancing uh life. Like now I'm trying to uh make things right mm. back here. Mm. So I think that was like one of the biggest positives. And I would come home like really satisfied with the work I do. And then the second thing was I got to come home. Mm. Right, so uh, I think that was the the greatest plus in doing like what, what I do now. Mm -hmm. right, just a higher purpose of, and I, I know you touched upon this all the way in the beginning as mm -hmm. well. Like you, you're not the sort that wants to disappoint. Yes, maybe, maybe that helps in that regard as well. Yes, and I think it. You left it unsaid, but I'm gonna assume and mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong that you're probably pretty competitive. Um, in terms of wanting to be good at what you do, and maybe that feeds into that aspect a little bit as well. Yeah, but I won't say I'm competitive in others. Yeah, but in yourself, I, mean, I am very like, like you, you want you want to be good at what you do in terms yes, of yes. being successful or or whatever metric you kind of measure that against. Yes, you want, you want to be like above the average. Yes, because I yeah. I don't want to do the bare minimum. I don't think it makes me stand out. In any way, and it just, uh, you know, it, the disappointment of like delivering bad care to a patient, I guess, is my standard. So there are many times, like, I take someone to the hospital. Now uh, the day goes by, uh, there's a good chance I'm gonna get off soon. My goal is to like swing by the hospital again and follow up, mm -hmm. make sure. What I did was set them up for uh, success in their treatment and also like let them understand that the person that was there initially hasn't forgot about them. So that's, I guess, the disappointment, but then also uh, is my way to go above and beyond like the normal standard right. in like following up care, uh, making sure I learned from that specific 
emergency that I just took care of, like could have done anything different and would have changed the outcome in how they were treated in the hospital. Would have been better, would have been worse. Right. So that's like some of the things I like to practice uh, on my own, which I think like a lot of EMS providers should do too. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. How, I'm, I'm, I just, when you were saying that, mm -hmm. something just clicked. Do you find that, I, I use the word burden loosely, mm -hmm. because obviously you choose to do that, right? It's not officially in your job description to go ahead and go back and check on your, pa um, your patients. Yes. Do you find that as a burden or do you find that relieving in sort of a way? Does that make sense, the question? Like, do you find yourself wanting to go back after at the end of your shift? Say like you had a long shift, you're pretty tired. Um, and you know, you could just go home. Um, yeah, it, yeah. it is it, because it also entails me dragging my partner. <laughs> uh, there you so go. I have to have buy-in, you know, but then yeah. it also, I, I guess I try to raise the standards in EMS care if you're working with me. Mm. And I think that's like in working as a team, it is great to work with people who instill a little bit hot that set the standards high. Mm. And then you kind of feel like extra pressure to get there or else they're gonna look at you like as a failure. I feel the same way. <laughs> it's good to be around people who yeah. are high performers. Cause yeah. then, Cause like we all want to be useful in life yes. to a certain extent right? yes. so if you see a high performer you almost automatically without even intentionally saying i'm going to be better uh -huh. you just sort of are better right? yes yeah so my deal is always like um and i think this comes from uh my time in the marines was i was oh i think what made me perform more was the pressure from my peers who are trying to perform high mm -hmm. i could have always like done the least but i would have didn't look that like as mm. someone that can't cut the the standard mm. so when i guess it's always been instilled with me to just go a little bit more and then hopefully drag or influence the people who just want to get by right. to like push a little more because overall we always want to see how much more we can do or mm. our limits or uh, get our standards higher and that's what, what I always look for in a good partner and sometimes it's it, It's a struggle, but you know, I, I think it's always been in my career I think I've been doing this now 16 years. If you talk to my partners. They always see like we're always on the go if like uh, There there's a saying in the in the Marines like continuous action. If there's nothing going on we had to see what we can do to prepare for the next one hmm. or find something to train or educate ourselves to be uh, better for the next one. So whether or not we're restocking the ambulance or we're just doing research on uh, the, the standard of education or um, medical care in, in the EMS field. So uh, they probably, they always see me like reading on it or listening to podcasts about the next one because it's also like a mental preparation game and then also the operational part like getting the ambulance ready it doesn't fail all our equipment's good to go right. you know that and those are the things we feel i feel like we're going to fail the patient if we didn't do that continuous action I continuous like action yeah. yeah things are yeah. always going on yeah yeah i love that it's it's I mean, I, I, it, for me, I, I kind of dumb that down to like just planning and being prepared, mm -hmm. right? Because if you are, 
if you are able to execute in, in like so in a gym environment mm -hmm. um, around a lot of the background stuff that most people don't see mm -hmm. it's because it was kind of done beforehand right it, yes it wasn't it wasn't magic so, so to your yeah, point show yeah, yeah like so the <laughs> so ambulance is functioning uh -huh. not because some act of randomness right? yeah because you you guys probably prepped and you were well prepared yeah of needing you know set things uh -huh. and makes things more but the probability of success is much higher because of that exactly yeah yeah like um i think that if you don't take the steps in correcting uh problems that you anticipate i think there's things that people think of that could go wrong right and if they didn't take those steps into preventing it yeah. i think they could have they failed already Mm -hmm. they, they they could have fixed it, but they decided to just let that thought go on in their mind, but did nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I feel like that's on them. Then that's like something you could have corrected beforehand. I I agree hundred mm -hmm. percent. And I fight my and I'll be honest too. Sometimes I fight myself on that mm -hmm. because there's always in tendencies and instincts to oh whatever excuses you can come up. With. I'm tired. Uh, late, I'm hungry. Whatever. Yeah. Right. But at the end of the day. It's really up to the individual to say that this is beyond yeah at control. the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then there is that part where I think you go a little bit too far, and it causes <laughs> yeah. you anxiety. Yeah. And the people I treat, they they do worry rather than there's that worry part than those who anticipate. You know, so sometimes you have no control of it, but like you should be mentally prepared for those things that could go wrong. Right. And sometimes it's just visually thinking of what's going to go on and how your corrective actions at that point. Yeah. And that kind of, I guess, soothes my mind that I've already thought it out. I didn't have to prep anything because probably I've, there's only a certain amount you can prep for. But mentally, when a scenario comes up, what are my mental you're ready. thoughts you feel, at that you, time? At least you feel ready. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think you, you, if you talk to a lot of people... Uh, who prepare for the worst they, there's that visualization of scenarios mm. that prepares them for it or like even like visualization of success how do you visualize like coming through i think that's like a great way to prepare for a worst case scenario is like what are my actions if this could go wrong or and what are my choices and then when those things happen you already thought of it already right so it's already happened in your brain yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there is that part, I guess, that cuts out my anxiety. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I see the sweater you're wearing. Yes. Uh, as, and you mentioned a little bit in the outset that you had translated the professional part of your career mm -hmm. into something that you are now obviously devoting a good chunk of time to as well. Yes. Tell me a little bit of, about, uh, about Black Six and why is it important to you? Uh, yeah, so Black Six was an idea, uh, I think it was back in 2017. I was already 11 years into my EMS career. I was working as a supervisor in Queens as an EMS supervisor. And one of the units uh, running in Queens was one person short. So I jumped on as the second person and I ended up working uh, with another veteran. His name is David Guzman, who was a Navy corpsman. So like I said, the, the Marines don't have their own medical staff. Uh, 
David Guzman was a Navy corpsman that supported the Marines. And at that, at his experience, he, ex he supported the Marines in Fallujah, Iraq. Mm -hmm. So he saw a lot of action. And we didn't know each other much other than that he heard of me as a supervisor from another hospital coming here. Oh. And a lot of the people were testing me because I was from another hospital. And then I heard of him because he was a Navy corpsman. And uh, we pretty much, the first few hours, we were just conversating uh, about our experiences. And then we we just got set up with a bunch of calls. And sometimes when you work with someone for the first time in EMS, you're still like feeling each other out. Who's gonna do what? Right. Uh, how are you guys gonna communicate? But this one became, this particular shift was like, we've been working with each other for years already. Mm -hmm. And it became like fun. Like we were laughing despite the situation, like we were carrying people with bed bugs. <laughs> and he's like, never on this shift have I had to do this many like bed bug infestations. Like why did this, like I was the bad luck. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you shut up doc. <laughs> like this yeah. is nothing. Like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. we just wash each other, or, you know, we'll yeah. be clean. Yeah. And but it was funny. It was just back to the um, the the bickering in like the military we were used to. So okay. as much as we're complaining to each other about each other, yeah. we enjoyed each other's company. And then I think uh, it led to more conversations uh, down the line in the next few weeks, where we you know we spoke about our time in the military and what we missed, and we said what. What were some things we liked and one of the things we didn't like? One of the things we liked was being on a mission. Uh, one of the things we didn't like was definitely like killing people or having our uh, people in our team getting hurt or killed. So uh, we thought of things that we can do now and we and speaking to our peers too in the EMS, what are the things that you know wish you could do? And a lot of them said, I wish I could do like humanitarian work or disaster relief. Like, and I was, and then I began to think, I was like, how we like improvise most of our time on the streets in New York City into adapting what is like thrown at us in the city. And these uh, professionals have always just been like adapting, like, and figuring out how to like take care of someone, get them out of the worst situation. Right. And then I also thought like, what, better way to deliver that kind of adaptability and grit than our experience in military planning. Uh, when we would execute missions, I love the meticulous planning that we would go through in uh, doing a reconnaissance of a objective and then planning out who's going, who's doing what, what are we bringing, and then what are we doing after, after uh, we get there. So we decided to like create the Black Six Project because it was then a fulfillment of things that we missed and also a fulfillment of things that our peers in EMS always wanted to do. Okay. And I, th I felt like those four years of doing missions in like dangerous areas would just go to waste. Why don't we use our experience in that kind of meticulous planning, but now instead of killing people or uh, taking territory, we're now delivering care that we're 
so great at in in doing in New York City. So we decided to make it a nonprofit, and I decided to create the name Black Six because it was the name of the platoon I served with on my second tour. On my second tour, we were, I would say, a few misfits. We were we really didn't train together, but we got put together just before our deployment, and I felt we were different parts of the country. Like you wouldn't think we would mash up. Mm-hmm. But we became highly effective, and I think our our integrity as a team was. I would never uh, ask for anything more than to be with those people again. Should I be involved in just having a barbecue or going to another country with another team? Mm-hmm. Those are the people that I thought that I wasn't going to get along with. Next thing you know, we were doing great things together. So I wanted to have the understand that despite our differences. We were great together because we had an objective to like take care of each other and take care of others. Mm. So we called it uh, the Black Six Project, and our first mission was to uh, Puerto Rico, which uh, David Guzman is from. Right after Hurricane Maria, mm. we were planning a humanitarian mission to the Philippines, but when Hurricane Maria hit, we just couldn't stand by and not do anything when we had such experience and now a growing capability to do it. Mm. So we planned it out and deployed one team, which was led by David Guzman. And we went to the, we saw our niche was remote areas. So from our military background, we had like the grit to carry in the equipment. We weren't staying in the most luxurious places. And it was just great to be embedded with the, with the community that was affected. Mm-hmm. We got to understand what they needed because we were living with them, uh, where they needed to go as far as resources, what they were missing. And secondly, they really trusted us because we're not just outsiders coming from the hotel at night. Yeah. We're, we're, there. we're, there, we're there in the misery. Yeah, right. And we're not asking them to go to the center of... Uh, a city when they have no ability to get there. So we were out there and that's where I think the Black Six Project's niche is is just to be more remote, live in those uh, places and also then bring in the resources uh, to where they are. Okay, so what, since since you did mention specifically the remote aspects of like what you find most effective and what you want to provide, Mm -hmm. What are some of the difficulties? Obviously, um, I guess I could think of a couple of top of head, but what what would be what would be some of the things that you wish uh, more resources and or uh, even organizations might help you in terms of making your efforts uh, more fruitful? So I mean, the question kind of makes sense. Yeah. Then I think like um, since Puerto Rico was more of a handled by FEMA. So there is like that federal help too. Mm. So I think there should be more of a push in the those remote teams that get out there and then have a communication with um, a central location. Because during that time we went to Hurricane Maria, our the hospital we were working for, me and David, they had a team that was uh, put together and went with FEMA. Mm. And so we had, a few paramedics from our 
respective uh, departments okay. embedded with FEMA, but they were in like air conditioning. They're like, mm. they're like waiting for something to do. Yeah. And we're messaging them like, hey, there's like, there's this remote town in the mountains that there's these landslides that's just covered the, uh, the roadways. And they're like, can you see if we could get anyone over here? And they're like, oh, if the, the roadways were covered, we can't get there. I was like, we got here. That's because we stopped at the roadway that was covered and just hiked in. Mm -hmm. And like maybe get some uh, air support, like which we were used to in the military. It was like, we understand how to like pick out a landing zone, how to call in that air support where they could drop off the thing. So yeah. I think there is that aspect where um, these remote teams can then get work with I guess uh, a federal government or whatever local government in those more bigger resource, but it takes a lot of, I would say muscle and grit to get to those locations and like tell them this is what they need. Yeah, I think to your point, mm -hmm. probably it doesn't get done nearly as much because it's more difficult, right? To where, yeah. compared to waiting in the city center where you can organize a little bit more effectively, quote unquote, yeah uh, safely if you will yeah and, and it's a little bit less of um, it's not a luxury it's not a luxury right um and so when you go on these missions and you bring a team with you mm -hmm. do you already have sort of a like you mentioned an objective in mind of what you want to accomplish and then you leave or do you get there and start to kind of figure out what is it that you can best do to help because i'm sure Actually, you tell me, mm. has it been your experience that whatever you planned out just nah. when you get there? Yeah, so the only in anything is like really to have actual eyes on on what's happening. We can't depend on like reports of people who aren't even there. We can't um, go off the news because mm. it's not detailed and sometimes it's spun different. And we always depend on the account of the victim. Because first of all, they've been living there for years. If it's a natural disaster, there's a good chance that this may not be their uh, that area's first time uh, experiencing it. So, like with us, when we have a you know a large snowfall, we already have an idea of what we're gonna do. Even though like our local uh, resources have not done it, we know what we need to do just to get our house in order. Right. So we listen to the locals the most because they, they know what resources are there. Yeah, what they need. The what most. they need. Yeah. And a lot of them are already at the uh, borderline or below poverty line in uh, economically in their area. Yeah. So one is they have grit and they just need the bare necessities, you know? We need to, in the, especially the first few weeks, is just get them their bare necessities. You know, we're, we're going too far already. We have to bring air conditioning, an ice cream truck, a food truck. That's not what they need. They need to just get the bare necessities and then see where they're going to go from there. Yeah. So we like to listen to the locals the most. And there, uh, we went to Haiti uh, in 2019. There's also that uh, pushback when there's a foreign foreigners who come and just yeah, yeah. don't listen to them. Yeah, yeah. And as uh, foreigners or even Americans, I would say, we come in and try to impose 
sort of like our standard of living, which doesn't make sense to them. To us, it feels like it makes sense because that's how we live everyday life. Yeah. But if you live up, if you spend some time with them and see what their way of life is, some of the things that we might have to bring in are not, don't make sense. Tell, so, me, one of, some, tell me an example that, that you just kind of um, to know. Like say, oh, like, so when we went to Haiti, there was, we went to three towns, but most of those towns had no roadways to get there. You have to hike up. Uh, some were three miles in, three miles back. Some were four miles in, four miles back. And um, I think there were some humanitarian organizations that thought they're going to make it there. So they would bring their vehicle up to a certain point and saw there's no roadways, nothing but a trail yeah. that gets them there. And then uh, they, they said, you know, we need water. We need to get you guys water and stuff like that, and and food. They don't eat the food that sometimes we package them in humanitarian. Oh, uh, so that's a different cuisine with the diet that they. Yeah. yeah. So if we can work with like they're like we don't eat this stuff, nor do we think it's good, or do we think, or nor nor do we how to know how to prepare it. They're like. MREs and stuff like that. Right. So, but they're already growing some stuff. There are some parts of the areas that we can bring food in and then support that, those farms that weren't affected. Yeah. And that's the stuff they normally eat. Okay. Um, so they're like, oh, we just need like cucumbers or we need some lettuce. Like we could have gotten that instead of like sending these packages. And, and we didn't, uh, water is very heavy. Yes. So we didn't need to hike water up there. there. There's a there's a river that we followed along. We just it was like we just need water filters. Yeah. And so like and they could like live for a long time off the water filters. There's no we like waste our time like trying to hike water up there when they they already had water. I mean, so it's so I mean it's not funny, but mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like a. A similar line to even how we experience difficulties here mm -hmm. which is a breakdown in communication yeah right because to your point you by speaking to the locals you kind of hear what they need most desperately mm -hmm. again they are probably not trying to live in luxury they're trying to just make it by mm -hmm. so if we take the time like we do like even here if we take the time to listen a little bit more <laughs> Yeah. Just take that extra couple of seconds. We will not waste bit. our time later on. Yeah. Right? By accommodating them in ways that are not really accommodating them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, this is not like it takes time, it takes resources. Mm -hmm. How do you fund the project? And tell me about how your future thinking is as you start to, you know, perhaps work a little bit more into like different efforts that you can do within this project. Uh, so we mostly fund our uh, projects by private donations. We are 501c3, so if you go to our website, we have a donation line that is tax deductible. And then uh, there was a mission that we ended up getting into coffee. Mm. So maybe to Victor Roth, this, uh, we did a disaster relief mission in the Philippines in this highland part of the Philippines I've never been into, uh, where a typhoon hit. And it caused this huge landslide. So um, me and three other medics from here went over there 
and we're like, oh, let's go help with the search and rescue. Um, but when we got there, not understanding the full scale things, we, we, we did embed ourselves, we stayed in a coffee farm, but they actually like dug themselves out of that area pretty quick. So it was totally different what we saw in Puerto Rico. So th these villages up there uh, experience these landslides often. So they kind of experience. Yeah, they had like uh, bulldozers, prep, push mm -hmm. that way. Meanwhile, one month later in Puerto Rico, like there were still roads that weren't accessible. Here is like, yeah, it was like three or four days later they had the bulldozers to get to the thing. But anyway, while we were up there, we were living in a coffee farm, and that was one of the things I've never knew was Philippines was growing coffee. Yeah. And being from New York, and being as a, a paramedic, and living with those, like taking the trip with paramedics, we're like, holy cow, there's like coffee here. We drink, this is something we drink every day over here. And I learned so much from that trip about coffee and where it grows, like I, I've never seen a coffee plant. Mm. Like it's a it's a berry or a, it's a cherry, and uh, we bought the last forty pounds of their coffee, and we put it into a backpack I was testing out uh, from another uh, marine nonprofit called Backpacks for Life. They gave me a backpack to test out on this trip, okay. and I put forty pounds in there, like. No better way to destroy a backpack than put like a shitload of coffee inside, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, my, my plan was to like carry it out of there and survive. I kept it in that backpack the whole time. I threw it in the overhead compartment in the airplane. I remember putting it up there and the flight attendant was like, can I help you? And I was like, no, I got it. And she tried to push yeah. and she was, what is in here? Wow. I was like, coffee? Yeah. And I was like, all coffee. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yes, all coffee. And then, so we bought it back. And then I was, I learned how to roast coffee just so we could see how well this coffee does. Like Philippine coffee, totally unknown to me at least at mm -hmm. that time, like was something being grown. And I had our coffee snobs, you know, from people from Williamsburg come, like friends like that. Like, hey, would you try out this coffee that I, I, I learned how to roast? Did not tell them where it's from. Yeah. And we had a taste test at my house and they were like, oh, what is this coffee? And I was like, interesting you may ask. Remember when I came back from the Philippines? I bought that coffee. They're like, Philippines grows coffee? Oh, they didn't know either. They didn't know either. Oh. And I okay. was like, this is growing up in the mountains of the Philippines. Like, what do you think if we sell this and we could like use the profit to then fund more missions? Oh, okay. So they're like, this coffee is amazing, so let's. I think you should do it. So, I created a website uh, for people can order, and then I just told people like, "Hey, we just bought back this coffee from the Philippines from this mission. Uh, buy it, listen to what you think, and then this we will go as uh, to the nonprofit where we mm -hmm. could do more work." And it was like sold out in a week, and I was like, "Holy cow! This is something like we should explore more." Right. And that is our other way of funding is where we like source coffee from different countries and use that uh, to fund the next mission to those countries. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 You, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to definitely put in. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who haven't already 
uh, heard me trying to push the product. Um, I'm gonna put everything in the show notes just so you guys can support. Um, like Joe said, uh, they do work on a donation basis as well. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to help him once. This guy does good work. Um, like he's very humble about it, but it's like I know I know the amount of time and effort it must take just to again you have a family, you yeah. have a professional uh-huh. career um, to do this on the side as well. So I'm just encouraged about mankind because of people like you. That's why I wanted to talk to you oh, today. Awesome. Um, so please go support and and I will make sure to keep you all uh, updated on that as well going forward. Um, so websites, coffee, mm-hmm. busy career, family, family. Yes. Um, I know I typically do rapid fire Q and A's. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this short a little bit just to dive off of the the serious stuff for a little bit. So mm-hmm. only family stuff this time. Okay. Just so we learn a little bit more about Joe. Uh-huh. So, Joe, tell me your favorite thing to do with your kids. Uh, favorite thing to do... Actually, before to... we start, uh-huh. how many kids do you have? I have two boys. Okay. I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. Okay. So, mm-hmm. what are your favorite things to do with them? I love to go camping with them. Oh. Yeah, because we grew up in the Glamping city. or... Cause... Camping. <laughs> okay. Camping. Yeah, they have to learn how to start a fire, pitch uh, a okay. tent. No complaining about the rain. Ah, there we go. Yeah. How, um, how often do you try to go with them? Uh, I try to go three or four times a year. Oh, wow. Because growing up, I always wanted to go camping. And my parents, uh, they were always trying to make a living. So now I try to make the time because I think it's an educational thing too. Mm. So uh, get them out of the city and like I love the great outdoors. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, do they are they are they adapting to what you are trying to teach? At least the older one at this point. Yes, they yeah. love camping. Uh, he loves to travel too. So, we've gone to like remote areas in the Philippines. We take him to remote areas in Guatemala okay. and right. Colombia. So, I've I want seen, him to see I've, the world. I've too. seen pictures. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, I want him to see how others live. So, sometimes he can appreciate what he has here. Awesome. Yeah. Um. What is something that you think you tell your seven-year-old the most about life here that might be different um, compared to what you've seen? Compared to what I've seen? Yeah. Uh, what I always say is don't be afraid to fail. Mm. Like I was always, I guess like growing up, uh, coming to this country was like, am I gonna fit in? Uh, that was a fear, I think. So now I pretty much say like, uh, I guess it's easy to say now that I'm grown up, but like, screw it if someone thinks this way about you. Sometimes you gotta like put it in their face. Yeah. Like, and something about that like makes me feel a lot better. But I think he need like a lot of times I have to let him understand or even like not be hard on him if he fails. Like it's a part of learning. Like if you don't learn from it, then that's the failure on its own. Right. But you just gotta keep pushing and get over that fear. I've always, I think I've always had that, but I guess I've gotten over it. Maybe because in the military, like you get screamed at if you fail. Yeah. Here, when you fail here, it's just a disappointment on yourself. Yeah, it's like the scale has yeah. been, it's been, it's kind of been lowered. So yeah, it's it okay. It's, it's okay. not as harsh. Yeah, like you may feel it, but not everyone's on you about it. Right. So, but I want him to like explore things without hesitation of failure or success okay. i guess yeah cool mm-hmm. so 
Gray outdoors as a kind of a favorite vacation mm -hmm. spot. When was the what was the last vacation you guys took together as a family? Uh, we went to Mexico. Okay. We went to Cancun, and it is out of our norm. We paid for all inclusive. Oh wow! I, I would have expected. That. Yeah, that's our <laughs> first time, and I think it won't yeah. happen for another six, seven years. You you didn't enjoy it, or it was just too too different from what you. It was like. different because. Yeah. Uh, the times we went to Guatemala or, um, Colombia, we lived with the locals and it was like, we felt like we got welcomed as a family. Yeah. Like there. Yeah. yeah. Like when we did all inclusive, I felt like, or those were like, we didn't see the country. We didn't experience the country. So, uh, I think that was like our, our last vacation, but we won't be doing that stuff a lot. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And I'm always curious, because you've traveled to so many different places in the world at this point. Mm -hmm. Do you have a certain type of like cuisine? Because I, 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 I think food is kind of like the common denominator. Yes. Between cultures. Uh-huh. Um, I really do buy like deeply. Like you can not enjoy a certain type of people or whatever, right? Uh, but, it's hard, but it's hard to it's hard to not make friends when you are sharing a meal. So yeah. with that. Do I have reservations or do I have a favorite? Yeah, do you have a favorite? Alright. So that the reservation is coming right after. Uh I, my favorite is tacos. Okay. Uh they do serve in Guatemala, they do serve it in Mexico. Yeah. But like tacos are my favorite. My son knows that. Yeah. Um but then I also have a stomach for everything. Mm. So you're not a picky eater. I I am not. Like okay. I will try anything once. Yeah. It may cause me like uh, diarrhea down the line, but like yeah, let's do it. I'm always like I I I would say I have a pretty strong stomach. Yeah. Uh, so I'm willing to try. And in you know what, like I'm Filipino too, so we do come from a Spanish background, but we also have our own unique foods. Mm. So a lot of the foods that people think are like, I would never try that. We have it. Yeah. So I was like, bring it. There's nothing that Filipinos won't eat. Right. So that's like my challenge. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, uh -huh. having, having not really objections to trying food, what is something that you've tried and you're just like, mm, really, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. Oh, it's actually a Filipino food. Oh, tell me. I'm actually really shocked to hear that. Uh, there's this dish my mom makes called mongo. What is it? Which is, uh, have you heard of mung beans? Yeah. I do not like that. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And then it's funny because uh, my parents have retired and moved back to the Philippines. Okay. But they spent their time back here uh, this past holidays. And they're like, oh, my mom was, she stayed at my house. With my parents stayed at my house and they're like, oh, I'm going to make my son mungo <laughs> and, and, and she's telling my wife which you know my wife jane knows very well i don't yeah. like mungo she goes yeah. this is joe's favorite <laughs> oh and oh, ouch. so that was not nice she though. was like you know that's not his favorite so one of the biggest reasons i didn't like it growing up because you know like that strict parenting of you're gonna eat this no matter what yeah and i think i was like full already yeah and I was force fed and I think I threw up. Oh. And uh, it looked the same way before I ate it. So I was like, that's gross. It, look, it, looks, it looks like vomit. <laughs> so I have this like, 
I guess this gaggy feeling every time I think right. of like that Mungo. And if you ever watched the comedian Joe Coy, yes. he has a skit where he shows up to school and his mom packs a Mungo and he's trying to trade it off. I haven't seen that. Oh, you guys yeah, see that yeah. one? He says like, oh, what the hell? Like his classmates goes, what the hell is that? He goes, it's Mungo. It's like green beans and either pork or shrimp. <laughs> Okay. And he doesn't want to eat it, yeah. but he wants to trade it. And everyone's like, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> All right, cool. I actually am mm -hmm. a huge fan of his, so I'm gonna I'm gonna catch that. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you like where where that joke is. Then. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, all right, so I always leave off all of the the, uh, the chats with this. So I want you to think a little bit about this. I think you touched upon it a little bit as well. So if you were able to offer one piece of advice to a loved one uh -huh. or someone you keep or you care deeply about and they mm. have to listen, what is something that you feel like you will want to relate to them? Uh, I think it is something you, I, I, I would, I've, I always carry with me. And it's probably an anxiety too, is like, you don't know when it's your time to go. Mm. So uh, I did lose a lot of Marine brothers so I always say, like, earn, earn your life. Like, your tomorrow is not promised. So I don't, I don't think you should live like a normal life. Nor should you, like, just live below what you think you can do. If you have like grand ambitions of like doing something, go for it. Because uh, there's people who like sacrifice to. Um, let you do it and for for me at least it's like I feel uh, I do a dishonor if I don't like live up to that expectation and then like there's so much to I guess this is like why I'm involved with so many projects it's like there's time for everything like give back to humanity somehow right. whether you set an example it's by your actions and like physically aiding someone or uh, mentoring or giving, like I, I see probably this is it, like giving my life experience as advice, like use some of your wisdom from your experiences to like pass on whether it is something you failed at or whether it is something you've been successful at. Because I learned a lot from failures, from people's failures too, as much as I learned from people's success. Right. So it's like treat each day as an opportunity because you, who knows what's gonna happen the next day. So that's my my advice all the time. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, tomorrow is yeah. never promised. That's awesome. Yeah. So we could take all, we could all take a little bit from that to, to leave a more productive or just a better life in general. Yeah, I think yeah. like even when I wake up every morning and even like, just like my first few steps is like, I always feel like there's a purpose for that day. And like, it is, I'm always like thankful for it, like the, the first steps I make, but then I always feel like each step is a purpose once I like crawl out of bed. Awesome. And, and I think people will see that in you too, when you you always have like have a purpose to go do something, yeah. That's awesome, Joe. Yeah. All right, guys, uh, again, it was an awesome chat. Um, I'm gonna put all the information that's relevant uh, for Joe's projects. I highly recommend you checking him out and to make sure that you're helping him aid making the world a little bit better place. This is the Talking Up Fitness Podcast. I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thanks for having me.